reads us this passage. Our scripture this morning is taken from Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see him, see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need uh, neither the lamp nor the sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 7, Behold, says Jesus, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 16, I... Jesus have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is God's precious word for us. You may be seated. There's a great deal of hope in that passage, and we're going to dive into it in just a moment. Before we do that, I want to lead us in prayer as we come before our Father as a church, as we do every Sunday morning, to pray for His uh, work in the world around us, in our own community, in other churches in our area, and in our own church. So would you join me, please, in prayer before we dive into the Word of God. Father, we come before you as your church this morning. Grateful, as we have already said, for the shining sun, for warmth after a long and cold winter. What a physical and tangible and small yet significant reminder that you indeed are in control and the future you promise to us is a blessed and glorious one. We thank you for that reminder this morning as your church. We want to come before you on this uh, holiday weekend, this Memorial Day weekend, which we as a nation have set aside to remember that... uh, Unfortunately, in a sin-cursed world, the one that we are looking forward to going away someday, but we still live in it now, and, and in that world, uh, peace and security, such as we enjoy in this country in large measure, always come at a price. And to acknowledge that there have been wars that have been fought and lives that have been given to protect uh, the security of our nation through its history, so we come thanking you for that um, peace and for that security, uh, thanking you for those uh, both past and present who have served in our armed forces and given up uh, portions of their lives or their time, uh, in some cases giving up even limb and life. So we thank you for them. We pray that you'd bless the families of uh, service members uh, even today and service men and women all over the country deployed as, or, or all over the world rather, deployed as they are in all places this day. And Father, our, our community in particular is aching and hurting over the news that so many of us have read. At the beginning of this Memorial Day weekend started violently in the city of Portland uh, with a stabbing on a max train, uh, racially and ethnically and religiously motivated violence that resulted in, at least from what I've read, two deaths and one injury amongst a lot of, of hate and evil. Father, we want to pray uh, for the victims of the stabbing and their families, uh, the two men whose lives were taken and those who uh, know and love them. We pray for their special comfort this morning. I pray that you would reveal yourself in a very strong way as the sovereign God of love to those who need that message this morning. Uh, For the one uh, young man who is still recovering, we pray for his full recovery, and we, we thank you that these three men were, from all accounts, trying to stand up to a very evil and hateful person who is spewing uh, violent language toward a couple of young Muslim women. Father, we want to pray for for the Muslim community this morning, particularly in our city, that Muslims all around the Portland area, I'm sure this morning, are feeling quite afraid. And that is very disconcerting and discouraging for us. And so we want to pray for them. We pray that that they would understand um, that their lives are not an imminent threat. We pray for their protection. We pray that 
that this kind of um, action would not spur like-minded crimes, but rather it would spur like-minded courage to stand up against Islamophobia and xenophobia in our community. Father, I pray for the Muslims that we know personally right here in our church. Those of us who, those, uh, of us who have friends and, and neighbors and family members who are Muslim, I pray that you would uh, use us as a real powerful tool to let them know that they are loved and valued as human beings created in your image. Help us to extend a hand of friendship and grace to them this morning, especially if they are fearful. And Father, we think of our Christian brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the globe this morning in the nation of Iraq, where there were at one time uh, over half a million Christians just a few years ago, and now largely thanks to the civil war there and the spread of ISIS, uh, so many have fled the country and far less than 1% of the population of that country is Christian. And the whole nation, as we see on our own news feeds, has been in chaos for a long time. We pray for the few Christians who are there, uh, particularly those, Father, in the Nineveh Valley area, which had been um, in recent years liberated from its uh, initially being overrun by ISIS, and now there is some desire for Christians who lived in those villages to return there, and yet the security and the stability is very much in question. They very much live in fear because they are Christians, and so we pray for their protection. We pray for their resettlement and for their security. We pray that you'd give them wisdom as they gather and they meet for worship, knowing that they live in a very hostile and in some cases violent community that will uh, risk, and they will risk life and limb sometimes, even just to gather to worship you as we have done this morning. God, that seems so foreign to us. And while I thank you that it is foreign to us, it is not foreign to them. So we pray for our Iraqi brothers and sisters in Christ this morning, for their protection, for their courage, for deep and rich times of worship, that their faith would be real, and that they would understand that they are not living for this life, but for the next. And Father, I pray that that same message would go out uh, in North Portland through University Park Baptist Church. We thank you for Pastor Chad and the friendship that we have with that congregation here. And we pray that as they gather this morning, right now as I speak, they are gathering in their worship service in St. John's. And we pray for great unity in that congregation. Pray for a very effective gospel witness in North Portland because of men and women who come together to serve their community and worship you and do all of that in your name. Lastly, Father, we want to pray for ourselves as a people, for the members of Harvest Community Church. God, I pray just for us, just as we prayed for our Iraqi brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would help us to grasp, even this morning, at a new level, that we live as Christians uh, for the joys that you have set before us, not for the best that this world can offer us here and now. God, I pray that the reality would sink so deep into our hearts that we would be a people who joyfully and freely give up our money and our time and our <clears throat> energy for the good of others so that people may see the impacts of the gospel in action and that thousands of our neighbors would have an opportunity to hear the gospel preached in word and in deed through the members of this church and come to new faith in Christ. God, we pray that you would do this work in the midst of this church for our good and for your glory. Teach us now, minister to us in your spirit, change us that we might reflect you. In Christ's name, we ask these things. And for his glory, amen. Amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, turn them, please, to Revelation chapter 22. Easy chapter to find because it's the very last chapter in the Bible. As one of my old youth pastors used to say, if you're having trouble finding it and you reach the book of concordance, you've gone too far. Uh, Revelation chapter 22. We are actually going to finish this morning our uh, ongoing study of the book of Revelation. We took a couple of long breaks in the middle, but we began this study last fall, working through the entire book of the Bible, maybe the most infamous book of the Bible. Uh, in some ways, the most, um, one of the most debatable and potentially difficult to understand. And so what we're going to do this morning is uh, try to take a look at the end of this book by doing a couple of things. Uh, kind of the plan today, this this chapter breaks down into two neat sections. There's the last bit of the Apostle John. He was the original human author of this book. His vision of the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to look at that. That kind of goes with our, our, our sermon last week. So the first five verses are kind of the last picture of the new heavens and new earth. And then the rest of the chapter sort of summarizes. It's, it's kind of the epilogue. It ties up not only the book of Revelation but actually the entire Bible. And so it's a fitting way to end our series in looking at the book of Revelation and seeing where it fits in the Bible. And 
our, our goal in that, my hope is that as a result of that, you'd leave this morning, especially those of us that have been through uh, this entire series from start to finish, but even if you've just joined us recently, even if this is maybe your very first Sunday with us and you're coming in on the end of a very long journey, our goal is that the Bible and its message, and particularly the book of Revelation, would be intelligible. Uh, it would be understandable because I believe that's exactly what God intends it to be. Now, that may sound a little weird at first if you're a 21st century American, which pretty much all of us are, or at least you're in 21st century America. And the idea that the book of Revelation, if you've read it at all, could be intelligible or make sense or have any kind of rhyme or reason initially may sound really questionable because it doesn't sound that way, especially to 21st century Americans when we first read it. And so what I'd like to do this morning, actually, is I want to start just before we dive in the actual text of Revelation, I want to start in a, in a little bit of a different way than we normally would. I want to talk about the book of Revelation for just a minute, because this is our last kind of shot at it. And if you've been with us throughout this series in Revelation, the things that I'm about to say will hopefully be clarifying and, and refreshing and good reminders as kind of our last pass. And if you are relatively new to our series in Revelation, this will catch you up fairly quick. So let me take just a minute and say something about Revelation then we'll dive straight into the text as we would normally do on a given Sunday. Uh, because we are 21st century Americans, that means some things. Uh, every culture has a certain way of thinking of the world. Our way tends to be very pragmatic, very practical, and also very linear. Uh, we appreciate straight talk. We're not necessarily, as a culture, big fans of uh, indirect speech or symbolism. We, we, if somebody needs to say something, why don't they just say it? And the shorter and the sweeter and the clearer they say it, the better. And we like logical, factual propositions where A leads to B and leads to C, and that results in a D. And you can just follow the chain right along of cause and effect. If communication comes to us in that form, we're like, yeah, got it. I like it. That makes sense. That's good writing, good communication. You don't have to read very far in the book of Revelation to realize that that's not how this book is put together at all. And so when we read it, we often get fairly confused about it. I want to address maybe one thing in light of this, this last couple chapters where we're looking at these visionary pictures, heavily symbolic language of heaven or, or life in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we started that last week in earnest and we're going to continue it this morning. Just before we do, let me address one thing that I think is often a potential misunderstanding. Uh, it may not really be a misunderstanding for you personally, or it may help clarify, I don't know, but in general, I think as 21st century Americans, this is good for us uh, to think through. And the misunderstanding would be, okay, since Revelation is given in such um, symbolic terms, because it's not describing things in a direct one-to-one -one way most of the time, it's instead using symbolic imagery, it must therefore be that um, it's not actually describing literal realities. In other words, um, these chapters, chapters 21 22, are describing uh, life in the new heavens and new earth in highly symbolic terms. We talked about that a lot last Sunday. We'll see it again this, this morning. And so sometimes the assumption is, well, because there's symbols and images being uh, used here in the Bible, it's not describing anything that's actually real. Heaven maybe really turns out be, isn't so much even a, a real physical place as much as it's kind of a, an, an ethereal sort of spirit existence, the likes of which we just can't even comprehend. But whatever it is, it's not going to be a physical place like living on this earth. And we think that because the language is so symbolic and it's not direct. Or maybe we think that heaven is going to be not even really a place at all. Maybe it's, maybe it's more of a state of mind. Or, or a state of being. It's, it's a qualitative experience as opposed to an actual place. Very common misconceptions, I believe, about what heaven is going to be. And some of it stems from the fact that we open up the book of Revelation that talks so much about heaven, and it's so clearly symbolic. Well, is that the case? <laughs> is the Bible describing in heaven an experience that is otherworldly or ethereal or totally and utterly different than the physical real world in which we live? Is it describing a state of mind or a state of being, sort of like the Eastern concept of nirvana, right? It's not a place at all. It's just a state of perfect balance and tranquility. Is that what the Bible is saying? Well, since this is our last shot at Revelation, I'd love to take a minute to categorically say no. <laughs> 
That's not at all what the Bible is saying about heaven. Heaven in the Bible, including the book of Revelation, is a literal, real, physical place. I could do a whole sermon on just showing you where that comes up in the Bible, and we're not going to take that time. Let me just give you a couple of the more prominent examples in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3 talks about how we are looking forward, the Apostle Peter says, to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. It's qualitatively different than the corrupt, evil, sinful world we live in, but it's still the world. By the way, when when Peter says uh, we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, Back in the first century, that, that's first century catch, a catch-all phrase. That's catch language for basically saying the, the universe. They, they would talk about the heavens and the earth. You know, today we would say like the earth, if we mean the whole planet, or we might say the universe, if we mean like all of outer space and everything in physical creation. They would say the heavens and the earth to mean essentially the same thing. The heavens is the sky, everything when you look up, where the birds and the clouds are, plus the outer heavens where the stars and the planets, you know, rotate. Uh, And then the earth is where the oceans and the land and all the people and animals are. That is everything in the created order. And so when the Apostle Peter says, the Christian's hope is that we're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, that is categorically a place, a literal and physical place. And the Apostle Paul says much the same thing in the book of Romans, chapter 8, where he describes how um, the physical world, the creation, he calls it, In other words, all of the physical reality that we know is in bondage, he says. It's in bondage to decay and corruption. And then he sort of personifies it by saying that the physical creation is longing eagerly for its own redemption, for its release from bondage, which he says will happen when we are released from bondage, when God takes us to heaven. So clearly heaven means that there's going to be a new and fresh and uncorrupted physical world. And we could go on and on with this, but hopefully we get the idea. No, heaven is a very physical and literal place. So why then, when you get to a book like Revelation, do you not get these kinds of straightforward statements? Why all the symbolism and imagery, and what do we make of that? Well, the book of Revelation, again, is describing the new heavens and the new earth, but not in a direct, literal way. Uh, we've talked before about the kind of writing that the book of Revelation is. Bible scholars call it apocalyptic rit- uh, literature. It's a type of writing that just doesn't even exist anymore in the world today, which is why it seems so strange to us. It's because it is. Nobody writes this way anymore, and they haven't for a long time. But they did back then quite often. There's all sorts of this kind of writing uh, that uh, historians have found in the ancient world. The book of Revelation is part of it. One of the key uh, distinctives of this type of writing is that it uses symbolic imagery to depict real people, places, and events. Symbolic imagery to depict real people, places, and events. Now again, because we tend to be concrete literalists, we tend to think that if something is symbolic, it's not real, and if it's real, it's literal. There is no in-between. Well, this kind of writing puts them both together. It's describing very real things in very symbolic terms. We might say these these things, the new heavens and the new earth in the Bible, they're not described literally, but they are literally real. And that's not as confusing as it might first sound. We've seen Revelation do this over and over and over again. A couple quick examples as reminders. Chapter 1 described churches as golden lampstands. Candlesticks, if you will. Candelabras. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. Now, is a church literally a candlestick? Obviously not. But that's exactly how it is pictured in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The symbolic imagery connects to the Old Testament and it says something about what a church is, but, but it's not literally a candlestick. The, the picture that you're seeing is not the literal reality. But here's the question. Are churches real? Of course. You're sitting in one. <laughs> uh, churches are gatherings of Christians around the gospel who gather for a couple of specific uh, Bible-determined purposes. That's what a church is. And there's churches all over the world, and there have been all throughout history. They're very literal and real things, but they're pictured in a symbolic way. So you see, the symbol isn't literal, but it's pointing to something that is literally real. Uh, Jesus is not a sheep. Although he is pictured as one repeatedly over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. In fact, the the symbol becomes so consistent throughout the book that by the time you get in the second half, they simply refer to him as the Lamb, capital L. There's only one Lamb in the book of Revelation. And every time you see that symbol or that image, it's pointing to 
Jesus. Now, Jesus obviously isn't a sheep. He's a person. And the sheep symbolism connects with the Old Testament and says something about who he is, but it's not picturing him literally as he is. But that doesn't mean Jesus is not real. He's very real. He's a literal person. Lastly, the first century Roman Empire is not, was not, literally a seven-headed reptilian sea monster. Although that's exactly how it's depicted in the book of Revelation in chapter 17. The Bible's not suggesting that such animals actually exist in the world. It's a symbolic image that says something about the Roman Empire. But what it's pointing to very clearly in the context, we saw this in chapter 17, is, is Rome, the Roman Empire which was a very real thing. It was a nation state that existed at the time. In fact, the Apostle John, and, who was writing the book of Revelation, and most of the original readers of the book of Revelation were citizens of the Roman Empire. It was a very real and literal thing, but it wasn't depicted literally. See how this works? Well, similarly, the new heavens and the new earth will not really consist of a cubicle city that's 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles long by 1,400 miles high, extending way out into outer space, even though that's the picture. That symbolism connects with the Old Testament and says something about life in the new heavens and the new earth. We talked about that last week. But that does not mean that the new heavens and the new earth are not real or that heaven is not literal. It very much is. It very much is. So hopefully that kind of resets the symbolic imagery a little bit. Um, hopefully we clarified questions. Truthfully, I probably just caused 50 more and we're just going to move on and pretend that didn't happen because we've got to move on. But as we see this last bit of symbolic imagery, I think you're going to see how this works. The symbols and the imagery and the Bible are always intentional, and they're always taking us back to the Old Testament. We're going to see that here as we dive into Revelation chapter 22. So let's begin with this first section. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Much of the symbolic imagery that takes place here as John finishes describing the vision that he received of the new heavens and the new earth, he says this, the angel uh, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. We're going to talk about this vision of this new uh, heavenly Jerusalem. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, as we pause right there, let me just point out uh, briefly four things that this image is designed to call to the mind of the Bible's readers. And every single one of these four takes us back to the very beginning of the Bible. When you read these four verses... What we're supposed to think about is Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Let me show you what I mean here. First of all, notice there's this idea of this uh, river of, as he calls it, the water of life in verse 1 that flows from the throne of God throughout the city and uh, brings life out from God's throne to, to all the earth, to all people who are there. Now, perceptive readers will immediately have their attention drawn back to Genesis chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, where before sin ever entered the world, Eden was described as a lush, glorious place, a garden, we usually call it, to, to picture this idea of a perfect, beautiful world. And in it was a river which waters the garden. That's the language of Genesis chapter 2. The river brings life to everything in God's creation. And then from there, uh, the narrative in Genesis goes on and says it splits off into four rivers that carries the water, the life-giving water, out of that specific garden area and out into the rest of the world. So that was a prominent part of God explaining what the world was like before sin corrupted it. Well, in the new heavens and the new earth, what do you find? You find a river proceeding from the presence of God, the throne of God himself, and it is the water of life. We haven't seen a river of life watering God's perfect creation since Genesis. In the entire Bible, we haven't seen anything like that since Genesis chapter 2 until you get to Revelation chapter 22. The Bible's last uh, chapter is connecting to and reminding us of its first chapters. God is restoring here what he originally created here and was lost and corrupted because of mankind's sin. You see, that's the message. 
Note also, by the way, the one additional detail. He refers to this as not just a river of water, but a river of the water of life, which is an unmistakable reference to John chapter 7, the gospel account that John himself, same author, also wrote about Jesus, in which Jesus calls himself living water. And he says, anyone who is thirsty, let him come and drink at the spring of living water. I will give you the water of life. So all of this is taking us back to Genesis through the lens of Jesus, as it were. Because Jesus did what he did, God is now able to restore what sin lost. Do you see that connection? That's what the book is trying to do. That's why the symbolism is here. Next symbol, we see much the same thing. Verse 2, we encounter something called the tree of life. On either side of the river, the tree of life, 12 kinds of fruit, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Tree of life? What is that? He says the tree of life out of the blue, as if we're all supposed to know what that means. There hasn't been a tree of life so far in the book of Revelation. This has never been mentioned before. Where is this coming from? In fact, if you start working backwards through the Bible, looking for clues about what this tree of life might be, you're going to come up empty, and you'll do a lot of searching, and you'll keep going back and back and back and back and back. And you know what? There's a lot of book in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? And you'll make it clear back to Genesis, and you're in chapter 28, it's not there. In chapter 14, it's not there. And you're going to get through all of this book, and you're going to see anything anywhere about any tree of life. Until you get to Genesis chapter 3. And that's where all of a sudden you realize, wait a second. In the earliest chapters of Genesis, there was a tree of life, as it's described there. And the last time it's mentioned is at the end of Genesis chapter 3, where, you may recall, God is um, punishing mankind because of mankind's sin. He is imposing what the Bible calls the curse, the results of sin. And one of those results is that mankind was cut off from the tree of life. They're kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And chapter 3 closes with God stationing a guardian angel, as it were, to make sure that Adam and Eve and any of their descendants cannot get back into the place of God's presence, Eden. And it specifically closes with the language that the angel was guarding the way to the tree of life. Mankind's sin has cut us off from the source of life, which is God himself. That's, that's the idea. That's the problem that the Bible posed to us from its earliest chapters. That's the problem that needs solving. That's the, the mess that needs cleaning up. Our sin has cut us off from life. And here we are at the last chapter. Suddenly the tree of life reappears. It's been gone so long. If you've been reading the Bible, you almost forgot it was ever even there but it plays a prominent role in John's vision. Standing in the midst of the people of God, and everyone has access to it. What's the point? We're back in the new heavens and the new earth. We're back to the way God meant life to be, which is nothing like what you and I have experienced on this earth. That actually leads to the third point, the life that we've experienced on this earth. The new heavens and the new earth is described in very different terms. Verse 3 says there will be nothing uh, accursed there. There will no longer be anything accursed. Accursed. That's a very specific and, and intentional choice of language, of word on John's part. The curse, again, takes readers of the Bible back to Genesis chapter 3, where God instituted the punishment for sin, and it was called the curse. Capital C, the curse, the results of sin the suffering, the pain in life, the existence of death itself, none of that was ever intended by God. But the world that we live in, the language of Romans chapter 8, is in bondage to decay. That's now the world we live in. Frankly, it's the only world we've ever known. Understanding that things break down and wear out and that there is suffering and there is pain and there is death is so much a part of life. It's just like it's the air that we breathe we don't even think about it anymore we just assume it of course that's the way life works well it is the way life works but it wasn't supposed to be that way and the bible promises us it won't be that way once again for all eternity 
The simple phrase, there's no longer anything accursed, is taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, where the curse was implemented, but now because of Jesus, it has been undone, and it no longer has any sway over God's creation, just like it didn't before. All of this is taking us back to Eden, which leads us to the fourth and final point, verse 4. It is said that everybody there, God's people, will see God's face. This, again, is something that has not been true since Eden. Even the great people of God could not be in, 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 in the Bible, could not be in his presence unfiltered and survive the encounter. Probably one of the closest anybody, uh, opportunities anybody ever got to that was Moses. You may recall back in Exodus chapter, what is it, about 33, where God says, I'm going to show you my glory, but he, he sticks him in like a little wedge between a couple of rocks, and he sort of shields him, and he says, you actually can't see my face and live, so I'm just going to give you a glimpse of the afterglow of my glory. And that's even Mo- that's Moses, the great man of God in the Old Testament. Nobody can look on God and live. We have not been face-to-face with God for a long, long time. But according to the Bible, we can't say that humanity has not been face-to-face with God ever because actually we were originally created to be face-to-face with God. Adam and Eve, the Bible says, walked with uh, God in the garden. They communicated directly with him. His presence was there. There was no sin to keep them apart from him, and so they enjoyed the full magnificence of his presence all the time, totally unashamed, unhindered access to the God of love and power and grace. The Old Testament temple was a way to give God's sinful people access to him, but it was also a way to keep them at arm's length. You can't come into the room where the presence of God is or you will die. Even in the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit brings us closer to God than we have ever been since the Garden of Eden. But there's no mistake, even the New Testament uses the language of a down payment when it says that the Holy Spirit of God himself is living inside a Christian. It says that's just a a down payment. That's just a little taste of what it will be like when you are fully in the presence of God face to face with no fear because sin is wiped away. That will be life in the restored new heavens and new earth. So what do we do with all this? Pull it all together. What is the Bible saying? Very clearly, all of the imagery from last chapter, chapter 21, was taking us back to Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. We talked about that uh, last Sunday. This week, these first five verses of chapter 22 are taking us clear back to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. It shows us that there's great intentionality to how the Bible is put together. There's great rationality to it. There's a a rhyme and a reason. There's a, a, a unifying theme and message to the entire Bible from start to finish. And here, as not only the book of Revelation closes, but the entire Bible closes, it closes by connecting us all the way back to the beginning and essentially saying, this is what everything in the middle was all about. What was lost at the beginning is restored at the end because of the climactic and final work of Jesus Christ on the cross to suffer and die and pay for our sins. That's where it's all heading. That's where it's all heading. And that for us is a great blessing. What what do you do with that? Even if we recognize that, okay, this is what's happening, that's interesting information about the Bible, how does it impact our lives? Friends, how does that not impact your life? (laughs) It's very difficult to start talking about how it impacts our lives because no matter what you say, you're going to leave something out. But maybe the best place to start is with the text itself. If you drop down to verse 7 in Revelation chapter 22, the words of Jesus, he says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, referring to the book of Revelation. Now, that's almost a direct quote from Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, the very beginning of the book, which says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. You know, one of the points that we made back at the, at the outset of this study, and, and I only hope it's been clear as we've gone through it, but, but let me... Let me make it again here at the end because the the text makes it at the end. The point is simply this. The book of Revelation 
primarily is designed and intended by God as a, we would call it a pastoral letter. It's only secondarily a theological or predictive one. It's primarily a pastoral letter. What that means in plain English, it's meant to help and bless the average Christian as he or she walks with Jesus. That's what it's meant to do. That means that the book of Revelation is not, at least at first, primarily intended to be a predictive guide to specific future historical events. Even though it said some things about future events. It's not given to us as, as a cipher, like, like a, a decoder ring that you can hold up next to your newspaper and say, oh, because I have the decoder ring, I now know what's going on here. That's not the primary point. That's not why God put this book in the Bible. And it's also not primarily given as combustible fuel for the fires of theological debate. It's not primarily uh, written to give job security to professional theologians, although it does that. <laughs> and that's not bad in and of itself. There's certainly a number of things in this book that are um, debatable and lots of very good and rich debate has ensued over this book for 2,000 years, ever since it was written. And by the way, that's not all bad. That's really good. To, to look at the different ways Christians have understood this book and try to compare and contrast them and figure it out, there, there's, there's a good and a healthy um, place for that. That's a good thing. But it's not the primary purpose of the book. God didn't use symbolic imagery just to confuse us and give us something to talk about for 2,000 years, right? The primary purpose stated at the beginning and at the end is that the one who keeps the words of this book will be blessed. That means God expects that we will be able to keep the words of the book. In order to keep them, that means you obey them, you follow them. And in order to follow them, you have to understand them, right? <laughs> so God is assuming we can make sense out of this book, at least its main message, its point is clear. And those Christians who take it to heart and follow it will be blessed. In other words, this book will change your life if you heed its message. In this sense, the book of Revelation is absolutely no different than every other letter in the New Testament. It's designed to give Christians at all times and places life-shaping truth and guidance for living faithfully to Jesus in the midst of a world that is profoundly uninterested in doing so. How do I live for Christ in the midst of a sinful world that is largely not interested in following and submitting to Jesus? How do I do that effectively? If you heed the words of this book, this book promises you will be blessed. So what is that blessing? Let's turn the corner on the kind of head for home here and kind of look at the final couple of verses or latter couple of verses in this chapter. What, what blessing is being talked about here? What does God intend for this book to do for us? If you drop down to verse 14, the narrative begins to close by saying, blessed are those who wash their robes, again, some of the well-established imagery of the book, uh, so that they may have a right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. We get a couple of statements here in these last couple chapters that really highlight what God wants us to take away from it. First of all, what is the blessing? Well, you know what? Ultimately, Ultimately, the blessing that is referred to here over and over again, the good things that will accrue to you if you heed the words of this book, the benefits, if you will, is the ability to experience this restored, curse-free, eternal life. That very clearly is what the book of Revelation, and frankly, the entire Bible, has in view. The ultimate blessing is that you one day will get to experience this curse-free, restored, eternal life. Blessed is the one, verse 14 again says, who washed their robes, that they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may receive directly the life from God in his presence. That doesn't happen until we get there. But you want to be there. <laughs> that's, that's the point. You want to be there. Because if you're at that blessing, friends, it won't matter what happened to you in this life. 
Because for in light of eternity, everything we experienced in this life will look light and momentary. To use the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. Now by that, he does not mean that the pain and suffering of this life is actually meaningless and it's really not that big a deal. That's not at all what he's saying. We deal with real pain and real suffering here. But what he's saying is, in light of eternity and the blessed hope of being in the presence of God forever, when we get there, we'll realize that was nothing. So glad I did it. Never forget the greatest uh, cross-country race I ever ran. I was a cross-country runner in high school, uh, which I think says a lot about my sanity because nobody does that on purpose without something like wrong with them to actually run that long and punish your body that much. But that's what I did. No offense to you other runners out there, but hey, we can have a support group afterwards. Anyway, one of the greatest races I ever ran, I was pushed by, I was a sophomore, and it was the league finals, and I was uh, pushed by another young guy who was actually just a freshman, but a phenomenal athlete at a rival high school, and their team wasn't big enough to, he, he ran varsity the whole time, he was, he was better than most of the runners in the league, and their team wasn't large enough to hold, host a whole varsity team, so he could only run as an individual, and so uh, his coach dropped him down to the uh, junior varsity level, which is where I was running, just so he could win a race instead of finishing in the middle of the pack. So suddenly I was up against somebody who was like used to way more competition than I was used to. And to make a very long and excruciatingly painful story short, I was pushed by this kid harder than I've ever been pushed in my life to the point where I literally thought I was going to break. Three quarters of the way into the race, it was the only time in my life I pondered quitting. I'm like, I'm going to fall and pretend I twisted my ankle because I just want, I want it to stop. And I guess I was too arrogant to just like slow down, you know? <laughs> that would have been the easier way. But for some reason, that's not what I was thinking. I was thinking, I'm going to fall, right? And I, I didn't, um, mostly because I was afraid people would know I faked it, and then I would feel like a fool. And right about that moment, just after I decided I wasn't going to quit, he kind of ran out of gas, and I pulled ahead and actually won that race. It was awesome. I was like, yes, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Hasn't been since I was 16 that people clapped for me on that. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Greatest victory in my life. Nobody thought I was going to win. I didn't think I was going to win. And I beat this guy. Well, I actually could not walk for about 10 minutes after that run. I literally had people, two teammates, holding me up. And it, I just had to, after a while, once I finally got, I literally had to just stand there. And I just, I couldn't even walk. I was so spent physically. But you know what's funny? I joke about the applause. You know what's funny is when I look back now, that was 30, 30 years ago. I am, I'm excited about the victory. I won my high school varsity letter that day. I was proud of that. You know, I remember that I was in pain, but it was about 10 and a half minutes of pain. I don't remember the pain. If you say to me today, was it worth it? Absolutely. Doesn't mean the pain was minor. That means... For 30 years of being able to look back and say, I'm proud of that accomplishment, that was worth it. Guys, that's a small picture of what God is saying about heaven. The blessed hope is being there because when we are there, whatever we had to go through up to and including death itself to get there will seem light and momentary in comparison. So you say, wait a minute, you mean... The blessing that God is talking about in the book of Revelation is not primarily for like here and, and, and now. Like if I, if I pray, um, if I seek to follow God, um, you know, to the best of my ability, I'm, I try to be uh, a good person, God isn't necessarily going to save my marriage or land me that job or improve my health. He won't fulfill my longings for family and happiness right here and now. Is that what you're actually saying? Is that what the Bible is saying? Pretty much, yeah. It's, it's a little more complex than that, but pretty much, yeah. That's exactly what the Bible is saying. God has never promised that we will experience eternal life in the temporal world in its fullness. We get the down payment of it. That's where it gets gloriously complex. But the ultimate blessing that's being referred to here is you want to have the robes washed, 
to stick with the imagery of the book. You want to have the right to the tree of life. You want to be able to enter into the city by its gates. And remember from last Sunday, the city is the people of God. It's a symbolic way of being. You want to be part of the people of God for all eternity. If you've got that, no matter what you went without for a short time in order to get it, it will be worth it a thousand times over. Because God is not so short-term in his thinking as we are. His dreams are much bigger. He promises to bring his people the ultimate joy to which every single lesser joy in this life ultimately points anyway. Because no matter how good things are here, they cannot ultimately fulfill. It's difficult for us not to obsess with career goals, family desires, the ways that we want to have fun, the things that we want to do. And and there's nothing wrong in, in and of itself with any of those things. Having a family, having career goals, having fun. But... They're not the point. And the real blessing is not for the person who gets more of that than average in this life. The real blessing is the person who gets eternal life in the end. You want to be blessed by following the the thought pattern of the book of Revelation? The first thing we start is by getting our eyes up. And if we do that, we're far more likely to attain that blessed future, and then indeed you will be blessed. The one who lives for the real payoff will be blessed in the end forever. Not just a little more happy for a brief while. This is very common and consistent uh, New Testament teaching. Just one brief example of this, Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus said, Jesus is in the wrong book. No, I'm in the wrong book. Luke chapter 12, verses 32. And I wrote down the reference wrong. I'm just going to tell you what it says. <laughs> you know it. Don't store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Thank you. See, you do know it. Where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. You know, as good as you can get it in this life, it's always limited and you could always lose it. So don't bank on it. He says instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where you don't have to worry about losing all that stuff. That's the greater blessing. That's what Jesus says then. That's what the book of Revelation is saying now. Now, verse 15, blessed are we, verse 14, if we keep the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 15 goes on to say, outside the city, now we're back to the imagery of the city, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the moral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. If you're in the city, you're away from all of that stuff, you see. That's the kind of life you want to have. Uh, By the way, just a quick note, this is yet again another indication that the book of Revelation is not trying to be literal or chronological so much in how it's narrating things. Because if you take that literally, if there's going to be a literal city in a a literal new earth and inside are the people of God and outside that city are sinners, then you have a picture of eternal heaven where there's still sinners running around in the world rebelling against God, which doesn't make any sense at all. The point is not to be so literal about it at all. The point is to say when you get the blessing of being part of the people of God, you never have to worry about any of that kind of stuff that's such a problem here on this earth and in this life now. It's a metaphorical way of saying there is no evil, there is no corruption, there is no suffering in heaven. That's part of the blessing. You get there, that's what you have. So then verse 16, Jesus himself says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Those are both um, messianic Old Testament titles. In other words, the bottom line is Jesus is saying, I am the center of this whole bailiwick. I'm the center of the whole thing. Jesus Christ himself his life, his death, his resurrection, and his invitation for us to find eternal life in his sacrifice on our behalf. That's how this whole thing comes about. That's how the curse is reversed. That's how the blessed eternal hope is attained and achieved. He says, I am the Messiah. I'm the Savior that was promised from of old, and this future that I'm describing to you through John in the book of Revelation, is the future that I have brought about and will bring about because of my sacrifice. 
And so that leads us to the final point for this morning, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. The bride, again, a reference to the people of God. The one who, uh, let the one who hears, in other words, the person who's reading this book, likewise say, yes, come. Let the person who's reading for this yearn for and long for this experience with God for all eternity. And then there's an invitation in the middle of verse 17. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Again, echoing the language of Jesus in John chapter 7. I am living water. Let the one who is thirsty come to me, and I will give him springs of living water such that he will never thirst again. Friends, if you're a Christian this morning, the book of Revelation calls us to lift our eyes up and not be satisfied with the lesser things of a dying world. I think I mentioned before, um, the late Dr. Howard Hendricks had a saying that's always stuck with me. He said, you know, if you're um, not a Christian, then you're in the land of the living on your way to the land of the dying. You're alive now, and you only go around once, and you got to get the most you can out of this life because it's not going to last forever. So now's your shot. On the other hand, he said, if you're a Christian, you're in the land of the dying on your way to the land of living. I don't only go around once in this life. I don't have to get everything I can here because I know far better is coming. And when that mindset settles in to the heart, it results in a completely different lifestyle. One of joyful giving and sacrifice and service to others. I'm not afraid of losing what I have here because there's nothing I have here that's going to last long anyway or won't be replaced by something a thousand times better later that can't be taken away. That's the consistent message of the Bible. That's what the book of Revelation is trying to get us to see. And God, lastly, yearns to give it to you. We yearn for that lifestyle. We yearn for that eternal existence. But God yearns to give it to you. See the language at the end of verse 17? Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. What do I got to do to get in on this thing? It's always a cost. It's always a catch. It's always a string, you know. Somewhere. What do I got to do? What do I got to sign up for? Tell my friends. Give money to the church. Be a good person. You know, what do I need to do to get in on, on God's, you know, kind of cosmic Ponzi scheme? You know, <laughs> how do you get in on the ground floor of this thing so that it pays off in the end? There's nothing you bring to the table. That's what the Bible says. There is no cost, at least not to you and me. There's tremendous cost to Jesus Christ. It cost him the incarnation, it cost him his life. But he's paid that cost. He's the only one who could, and he did. So for you and I, there is now no cost. You want to find real life? He says, you come and take it. I've given everything to give it for you. God yearns that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. God is calling every single one of us to come find life in the gospel. See, friends, Jesus Christ was God, the second person of the Trinity, God Almighty from eternity past, but he became a man, limiting himself to an incomprehensible degree, the infinite becoming, as it were, temporarily finite, at least in his human experience. And he then lived that life, the perfectly righteous life that none of us could have lived for us, and he offers us that righteousness. He says, you've sinned, I haven't. You can have my good works. And then he went to the cross. He was whipped and beaten bloody and he hung there and he, until he suffocated and died. And he did that in our place too. He says, that's the death that you deserve. I'm gonna die it for you. I live your good life for you. I die your bad person's death for you. I do it all for you and I offer it to you. Now your task is to receive. Is to receive to come to the Christ who has given it all so that we could have this kind of blessed life for all eternity.
He says, come, take the waters of life without cost. God is yearning for people. He's not sitting back there saying, look at what I've done for you ungrateful people. How many of you are finally going to come up and say, thank you, and then I've done so much for you, maybe I still think about letting a few of you in. It's not his attitude at all. God says, you think I would have done this if it were not for my glory? You think I would have done this if I did not love you? I'm yearning for you to come find life. Friends, that's the message of the book of Revelation. It's the message of the entire Bible. That's the message for you if you're a Christian this morning. Where do you seek to find life here and now? What does it mean to yearn for life there and then? That's also the message for you if you're here this morning and, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. That's the Bible's message for you. Come, find life. We're going to transition into receiving communion here as part of our worship service. It is a part of our worship service. It's, it's a corporate act of worship that we do together. At Harvest, it's our custom to do it twice a month. Uh, the first time we do it, uh, the second Sunday of every month, we receive communion seated uh, in our places uh, as to, to create a little bit more of an individual time of reflection and response to God. Uh, the fourth Sunday of the month, which is this morning, we receive communion uh, more corporately. And so here's how this is going to work. In just a, a few moments, uh, the worship team is going to come back up here and begin to play some music. And we're going to have a moment of reflection. In fact, I want to take a fairly lengthy moment of reflection here, even before the team comes up, and just, to, just reflect back on the book of Revelation and God's invitation to come find life in the eternal reality that he will create because of what Jesus did. How is God prompting you to respond to that this morning? Maybe there's a lesser dream you hold on to too tightly. If I just get this income stream figured out, if this relationship works, if I could only have my health back, if, if I could only, if only, once I retire, whatever the thing is, then I'll have it made. Maybe there are lesser dreams that, that are not bad things, but you hold on to too tightly, and you need to bring those before your father now and say, I know there's nothing in this life that can satisfy like you do. Help me live this life in light of the next. Or maybe God is prompting you to respond to the gospel of Jesus for the very first time ever to embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, to say, Jesus, you provided the source of life by dying for my sins, and I accept that. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. I'm going to give my life to you and experience this kind of eternity. He says, come to the waters of life without cost. I want us to take a moment and reflect on that. Let me explain what we're going to do after that, and we'll give us the moment of reflection. We're then going to receive communion together, and I want to encourage us to receive it as a response. Communion is something Jesus told us to do consistently. That's why we do it twice every month at harvest. Uh, you take the piece of bread, you dip it in the cup, the bread representing his broken body on the cross, <clears throat> the cup representing his blood shed for us on the cross. And by receiving communion, what you're doing is you're saying, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is my life. You're saying, I've, I've embraced Jesus as my Lord and Savior and his death on my behalf. So to receive communion is to say, I'm a Christian. My life is defined by the gospel of Jesus. And so if that's you, then we're gonna invite you at the appropriate time to come forward and receive communion. There's actually um, these tables here up front. There are also two tables set up in the back. You can go to whichever table uh, is closest to you, either forward or in the back. There's also a table set up in the balcony. Um, it'll help us if you come forward down the center aisle and the outer aisles if you're down here on the floor and then use these other two aisles for heading back if you're going to receive communion back there and then return to your seats just so we don't get too many people colliding uh, down front. But you'll have an opportunity to come forward as the music is playing. Take one of the pieces of bread, dip it in the cup, partake of communion there and then return to your seats. We do this as a way to proclaim the death of Jesus and to say yes with my brothers and sisters in Christ here at Harvest. I'm a Christian, and I'm placing my hope in the hope of heaven that the gospel has produced for us. I'd like to ask the worship team to come forward right now, if you guys would. In fact, you guys can go ahead and partake right now, and then they'll get set up. While they're doing that, I'd like to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment. Uh, nothing super weird here. We're just trying to block out distractions. And here in just a moment, the worship team will begin to play quietly. And we're going to take a minute just for God to search your heart. How is God prompting you to respond 
this morning? How is God prompting you to respond to the eternal hope of heaven? Take a moment, just silently where you're at. Think, reflect, and then you can just pray silently where you're at, however the Lord leads you to pray. Maybe there's, maybe there's sin you need to confess. Confess it to him now. That's why he died, he'll forgive it. Maybe there are dreams you hold on to that are too small. Give them back to him and ask him for bigger dreams, eternal dreams. Take a moment and just reflect. And then at the appropriate time, we'll all stand and Draith will give us the signal that we can come forward and we'll receive communion as a church family in honor of the gospel of Christ. So let's reflect now.